0: Welcome back to the Wordsmith Podcast. I'm lead pastor Josh Bennett here at Awaken Church, along with worship pastor Matthew Grady Calhoun. Hey. Your boy, Pastor Shane. It's me. And boy, Hawk, the youth director here at Awaken Church. Yo, yo,
1: yo, what is going on?
0: So guys, here we are in heading into the month of November when our listeners listen to this. It'll be around the week of Thanksgiving, got me thinking about turkey and dressing and what do you guys do or enjoy about the Thanksgiving season?
2: Eating and taking a nap. That's our tradition. I like it all, though. I mean, I i, I don't, well, I tell you, about, I take that back. I do not like it all. I do not like casseroles. Hmm. Can't right. stand them. No, I never found one I like. And I know our listeners, know I know our listeners are going to say, it's just because you haven't had my casserole. Well, I don't want to try it because I, I've <laughs> had a hundred people probably say that to me before. And I've tried, ca- I just don't like casseroles. I think it's just too much going on. Hmm. You know, people try to church it up a whole lot, you know, just, I just want simple, you know. I just want green beans. I don't have to have a green bean casserole.
1: Make casseroles simple again. That's right. There you go.
2: That's right. But everything else is like, I, I like it. I like the ham, turkey. I'll even go chicken dressing, you know, not stuffing, but dressing. There is a difference. Yeah. I, I like that.
1: How does everybody feel about turkey cuz it's grown popular over the last several years for people to have very strong feelings about turkey. So where do you guys land on the turkey
3: or not turkey on Thanksgiving? We've never fried a turkey. So sure. I don't know how that tastes, but mm-hmm. we usually just cook it in the
2: I definitely like fried turkey. Yeah, big, better better yeah. than baked turkey. I like fried yeah, turkey, turkey
0: better than any other fashion, but I mm-hmm. I mean I
2: I'm so so on turkey.
0: I actually like a smoked turkey breast pretty well, but
2: I'll go ham. Bit. I like ham turkey all of it you know we yeah. we sometimes we have both sometimes we have one or the other but we're not yeah. like we always got to have turkey because some years we just had a ham yeah. and i think that was because the place i worked at they gave us a free ham every thanksgiving and turkey so mm-hmm. those couple of years we had ham for thanksgiving and turkey so sure
0: yeah, ham for thanksgiving and turkey
2: i mean and for thanksgiving and christmas <laughs> uh, but yeah
0: yeah you know here's the thing to me about turkey if turkey is so great why don't we have it the rest of the year like, if you ask somebody what they're having for dinner and they say turkey in July, you're going to go, What? That's weird. <laughs> it's weird. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. you're, you're going to make a comment about sure. it. I don't care who you are. So, if turkey's so great, why aren't we eating it year round?
1: I think that's a valid point. I, For the record, I do not like ham, but I love fried turkey. I will go out of my way for fried turkey. Out of my
3: way. If I'm you guys serious. have I'm not fried sure turkey. Sure I've never fried that before. Like, You've never had fried turkey? No, I you never. You have to have fried turkey. It's, it's really good. good. Yeah. I want to try this now, you know. <laughs> yeah, it's
1: it's
2: it's good,
3: man. It's We've good always stuff. baked a turkey, so. We've do y'all, y'all like like um done
2: that? Biscuits or crescent rolls? Do y'all have a...
3: both. Yeah, both. Oh, yeah. Always
2: My wife is man. a house. homemade
0: yeast crescent roll. Yeah. Oh, gosh, so good.
2: Do y'all do? I mean, besides eating, do y'all have like any kind of family tradition? Like y'all, there's a certain house you have to go to every, you know, every Thanksgiving or. Do people come to your house? I mean, like as pastors, you know, a lot of times you're not living in the same town where the majority of your family is. So especially like if you have, which it it not necessarily the case for me because both of mine live in the same place. But like if you have one side of the family lives in another state and another side of the family, I think, Josh, that's probably your, you know, your situation. Um, How do you navigate all that? So we rotate.
0: We do Thanksgiving every other year. At our house and then every other year we're either in Illinois or Nashville somewhere with my wife's family and we coordinate that with my brother-in-law so their family like last year we were at Thanksgiving here at our house well that, his family was with his wife and their family in Florida so this year for Thanksgiving we'll all be in Illinois hmm. and um, so we kind of rotate it that way every other year yeah um, and kind of do whatever we do for Christmas we do the opposite for Thanksgiving sure. that makes sense. so hmm Connor, what do you got about your family?
3: Every year we've always uh, ate at my grandmother's house. But when my grandfather passed away, we started going at my aunt's house. Um, and luckily, my, my mom's side of the family, they all live in Loganville area. So, uh, But this year, my dad was talking to us about maybe going out to uh, Myrtle Beach and uh, having oh, Thanksgiving wow. with his dad. So that should be different, but it should be good.
2: You know, I got some friends. They take a trip every year for Thanksgiving. They don't really – go to family's house they'll go to like rent them a cabin in Gatlinburg or something and have thanksgiving in a cabin like they'll they'll have family come there Thanks you know but like they that. they do like a destination thanksgiving i always thought that was real yeah, cool i couldn't ever get away with it because my family would hate me for it but sure. you know huh why <laughs> i mean my extended because they're like you're not you're not coming to see us this thanksgiving no. you know so yeah i thought i always thought that was real cool cool idea anyway it's if you could get you know family to join you there just doing a destination thanksgiving
1: So this Thanksgiving, for me, will be a very special one. I've not been able to have Thanksgiving with my family since 2012. Uh, I was in Texas for five years. That's the Independent and Sovereign Nation of Texas, ministering. Uh, Technically, one of those was home, but it was when my grandmother passed away. So we were in mourning. And then the last two years, I've been working at Walmart, and and anybody who's ever worked in retail can tell you they expect you to be there on Thanksgiving. It's kind of when all the forces are called in to prepare for Black Friday. So this year is going to be special. I actually get spent with my family. But what's interesting is I had a Thanksgiving tradition when I was in Texas. I won. I normally ate with my good friend John Collier, or I ate with uh, the Gowen family who I've mentioned before if you've been with us for a while. But then I had my own little tradition, and I would always, every Thanksgiving, there's a particular episode of The West Wing, which is an old drama from NBC, that I would watch every Thanksgiving. And I'm going to try to do that with my family this year. I doubt, I'll, maybe I can guilt my mother into watching it with me. Nobody else will probably do, but I'm actually kind of looking forward to trying to take that one tradition I had for myself and implement it with the rest of my family okay. do you guys have any kind of weird thanksgiving traditions or anything? Now, is that
2: west Wing? is it a thanksgiving themed yes it was okay. a, a, a thanksgiving like themed a, episode of okay west i didn't west wing. know if it was like a random no, episode no. Of, <laughs> yeah. of west wing you just like to watch every thanksgiving
0: so when i was growing up we had a tradition of having a neighborhood football game with yeah. all like and you know we'd have like my neighbors their grandkids and people from all over would come and Man, we took it, made a big deal out of it. We would set up goalposts, and mm-hmm. we yeah, had, like, nice. chairs out for stands and all this stuff. I mean, it was it was a pretty big deal. I said We probably did it every year for about five or six years, and it was it a was pretty neat, yeah. fun kind of deal. But as an adult, I mean, I'm with Shane taking a nap, eating, taking a nap to, like, a Cowboys game.
3: Yeah, watch whatever game's on that day. Mm-hmm. It's pretty much us.
0: Yeah, watch the Cowboys lose, the Lions lose. Pretty tradition there for Thanksgiving.
3: Yeah, I think I'm going to try to go hunting on uh, Thanksgiving morning. Really? Yeah. The uh, first season of duck season is from the <laughs> 21st through the 29th. I'm like, why not? Sure. Well, if we do go to Myrtle Beach, then I won't be able to do that. Yeah. But if we do get to stay home, I'm going duck hunting. I'm going to come back and take me a fat nap after we eat all that food. Okay, let's transition from there into Philippians
0: chapter 3, verses 12 through chapter 4, verse 1. Pastor Shane, would you read those for us?
2: Yeah. Um, beginning verse 12, it says not that I have already reached the goal or am already perfect but I make every effort to take hold of it because I also have been taken hold of by Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself to have taken hold of it but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and reaching forward to what is ahead. I pursue as my goal the prize promised by God's heavenly call in Christ Jesus. Therefore, let all of us who are Mature think this way. And if you think differently about anything, God will reveal this also to you. In any case, we should live up to whatever truth we have attained. Join in imitating me, brothers and sisters, and pray careful pay careful attention to those who live according to the example you have in us. For I have often told you, and now say again with tears, that many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their stomach. Their glory is in their shame. They are focused on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly wait for a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. He will transform the body of our humble condition into the likeness of his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject everything to himself. So then, my dearly loved and long for brothers and sisters, my joy and crown in this matter, stand firm in the Lord, dear friends.
0: Paul jumps right in here in verse 12, and, and he's really just continuing the thoughts that we discussed last week and says, not that I have already reached the goal, uh, what goal, just kind of a refresh in our memory, is Paul talking
1: about here in verse 12? Well, I think he's referring back to that whole passage there, chapter 3, verse 1 through 11, but in particular in verse 10 he says, My goal is to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death.
0: Yeah, so Paul's ultimate goal there is to know Christ and, you know, as we said, the power of his resurrection and fellowship of sufferings conformed to his death but ultimately i think that first line kind of gives us the the gist of it his mm-hmm. goal is to know christ and know him deeply so he starts off here by saying i haven't already reached that goal or i'm already perfected i love that humbling thought you know here through the book of philippians paul is teaching humility he's teaching unity he's teaching all these different things and he expresses humility here by saying look i don't think i'm already perfect." I haven't reached this goal. And it makes me wonder, you know, did he think maybe his listeners would have thought that he thought he was perfect or they held him in such high regard or why do you think he mentions that?
1: I think that's probably true. Uh, what you just said about, they may have already thought he was talking in a sense that he had already reached the goal. That he is already perfect. Cause just as we sometimes look back to the writers of the New Testament, Paul being a chief example, and we over-spiritualize to the point where um, they didn't really have struggles and they didn't really have the head all together, undoubtedly his followers at the time or Jesus' followers at the time and the churches probably did the same thing with them. Probably often forgot about the inherent struggles it is to live the way of Jesus, to deny yourself and take it across day after day after day.
0: People can still do that today. You know, they mm-hmm. think about pastors and they kind of, forget sometimes that pastors are real people with sure. real struggles and, you know, can hold pastors in a regard that's maybe higher than,
1: than they should. And mm-hmm.
2: yeah, I believe that's definitely true. Definitely true.
1: And that's not to say that obviously pastors are held to a higher standard. Yeah. The absolutely. question is how high that standard is. Yeah? Right. Sure. Yeah.
2: And I've, and I've taught some classes and I've, I've spoken with people before and, and they've mentioned some things and i don't know how to take this but um but they were like you know i always thought pastors when they talked about like struggles with sin and everything and you know different things that they preach on i always thought man they don't struggle with the same things i struggle with you know because like pastors struggle with maybe not getting to church on time and they (laughs) consider that a sin you know or and and they said but uh and one guy even said, "Like, but you're just as messed up as I am." I was like, "Well, I don't really know how to take that. Like, I, I, maybe I don't know, but I, I definitely struggle with some of." As I got to know the guy better, I, we definitely, you know, had, we, he was a guy he's about my age. He, he had children, and you know, some of our struggles were the same. You know, just being young, married guy trying to raise your family in the church. You know, and, and working in an environment which, um, I, most of my life I worked in construction. Not the most wholesome environment as far as like uh, the language and conversations that you hear and everything. And so we had some of those same struggles and same challenges, I think. And so I think that's, you know, in fuller context, I think that's what he meant by that. Absolutely.
0: It does at least open the door for a conversation that we won't dive too deeply into, but that's the doctrine of total sanctification. Somebody want to fill in the listeners what the doctrine of total sanctification is? You can certainly summarize and put
1: your own words on it. I think in its simplest terms, some denominations and some of our brothers and sisters in Christ believe that we can get to a point in this life where we no longer struggle with sin. And we don't hold that view. I think Scripture teaches that as long as we are living in this present life, until Jesus comes and brings His kingdom in all of its fullness, I think we're still going to struggle with sin from time to time. And yeah, I think that's, that's, I think that's, that's
2: a good absolutely you good. know, summation of, yeah. of that doctrine or that mm-hmm. belief. And, and I don't think
0: there's many faith movements that hold that doctrine, but there are at least probably a couple. Not. Yeah. In fact, I only have one that comes to mind for me. But I, I believe Paul here would be a good example. In fact, if Paul wasn't perfect, mm-hmm. you know, sure. it's probably a pretty good indicator that none of us are. But I do love that humility. And then he moves on. He says, but I make every effort to take hold of it because I have been taken hold of by Christ. Mm-hmm. So how does this this fact that Paul has been taken hold of by Christ how does that motivate Paul's striving towards this goal?
2: I think in a sense it kind of consumed him. You know, sure. his his thoughts, his actions, pleasing Christ consumed him. You know, it uh, for lack of a better term and I, and I think that's kind of the point that he's getting at right there.
1: I think too if you read it he says, "But I make every effort to take hold of it because I also have been taken hold of by Jesus Christ, he's saying, because Jesus has done this, because I'm united him in faith, and I, I live in him, and he now lives in me, that propels me all the more to make every effort, as he says there. The fact that he is united in Christ, he is whole in Christ now, only drives him all the more to strive to be more like Christ and to take hold of that goal. It's not, it doesn't, as we kind of talked about in previous episodes, it's not that grace then enables us to just kind of live however we want to live. And we'll talk more about that when uh, we talk about uh, later in the passage about uh, those who their God is their stomach, meaning they live for their own pleasure. He's saying, no, I I live all the more for Christ because he has taken hold of me. I was actually teaching this verse at our assisted living
0: place um, facility this last week. And I made this comment, and I think it's true in the context here, that if we were to just stop and meditate and reflect on what Christ did for us for 10, 15, 20, 30 minutes, and, and you just solely thought about the sacrifices he made, the humility it took, all, all the different aspects of the cross. I don't know how you could do that for 30 minutes and it not motivate you from that time forward, you know, for whatever, to go out and to live more holy, to mm-hmm. seek after mm-hmm. Christ more. And I even remember when I was in college, um, Dr. Garnet Reed was preaching out of Job, and I believe it's Job 19, where he said, I made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully upon a young so, woman. Yeah. And he said, you know, Basically, said to all the guys in the room, listen, you're all going to struggle with lust from time to time. But let me give you a tip that I think will help you. And man, it was a life changer for me. He said, whenever you're tempted, close your eyes and picture the crucified Christ. And man, I'm telling you, like it was literally a life changer for me from that moment forward. To, because it does kind of recenter things for you. And it does kind of refocus your attention and your heart. And it does motivate you to mm-hmm. want to strive towards that goal mm-hmm. of knowing Christ more. He says, brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what is ahead. That's one of those lines that is easy to say, yeah. but hard to live.
3: Mm-hmm. Is he meaning looking
0: back to his past self? I think he, he's talking about all my shortcomings, all my failures. all Every time that I failed to reach that goal, mm-hmm. forgetting what lies behind, and pressing on to what's for it and probably even to forgetting successes because sometimes successes can become a, a hang-up for us mm-hmm. you know can become an element of pride i don't know what do you guys think
2: i always thought now and and i think it's i think the the language is kind of ambiguous because on one hand he could mean before his conversion like forgetting hmm. that that's what i thought in light of christ because he, he's talking about being in christ but i think all but it's not that's it's not definitive in the language that he uses so it could also incorporate you know post conversion like like you said, like what you mentioned um i don't i don't think you'd be wrong if you um spoke on it either way
1: mm-hmm. yeah he could be referring back to what we discussed in the previous episode when he gave his qualifications if anyone has confidence flesh, I have more circumcised in the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews, regarding the law of Pharisee, regarding zeal persecuting the church, regarding the righteousness that is in the law, blameless. I mean I don't I think the language allows for him to be referring back to that passage and saying I've left that all behind.
2: Sure. Yeah. yeah.
0: I love how John MacArthur summarizes this. He says, Paul made a break with everything in his past, both good and bad. Religious achievements, virtuous deeds, great successes in ministry, as well as sins, missed opportunities, and disasters must all be forgotten. They do not control the present or the future. Believers cannot live on past victories, nor should they be debilitated by the sins and the guilt of their past.
2: Yeah, and by forget, I think we have to, and this might be an overstatement, but when we talk about you know, he's forgetting the past. He's not saying like in a literal sense, he's sure. not saying like, I, I don't remember the past. We we often attribute that to God. Like God forgets everything that we've ever done. But when the Bible uses that language, he's saying like when, when God forgets is to the point that he no longer holds it against us. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think if we kind of piggyback off of that, and we talk about us forgetting our past we're talking about the decisions that we make for the future are not based on the ones from the past. Like right? mm-hmm. we're not we're not acting on the past. We're acting on our life in Christ now. We're not uh, any kind of sinfulness or, or any kind of flaws or failures that we had in the past. We're not acting off of those. We're acting off our life in Christ. Not that we have forgotten those because I think you know, we many times we need to remember some of those things. We, sure. um, I, I remember how awful that was, or something like mm-hmm. that. I don't right. want to go back to remember that. The consequences, right? Mm-hmm. You, you need to remember those, um, sort of stuff. And I think also, even the, you know, your accomplishments, I think it's good. To see what God has done through you, because Absolutely. I believe it encourages you. You're like yeah. you, you can look back and say, "Man, God has always been faithful." I can look back at the past and see that He's always been faithful. But it doesn't, it also doesn't give you a an opportunity to like not pursue, not continue to be yeah. active in pursuing sure. that. You know.
0: Yeah. Well, and I think the key there is to reflect back on what God did. Mm -hmm. we get in trouble and you know we can get into a legalistic type mentality when we look back on what we did Mm -hmm. as opposed to what Christ has done in our lives and um, either can be a stumbling block the past is not relevant in in the aspect of moving forward what is relevant is putting all my attention focus energy on moving forward from this day and so even if somebody's struggling with a specific sin the fact that I gave in and committed that sin yesterday doesn't mean I have to today It doesn't mean that I can't move forward. And I think that's really what he's getting at here is that the past doesn't hinder us from moving forward in our relationship with Christ.
3: You know, here at the church, we have um, a youth ministry um, called Woke um, for kids from 6th grade to 12th grade. Um, And last night, actually, we were talking about how, you know, the Lord has made this day. And we brought up Lamentations uh, 3, uh, 22 through 23 about how His mercies are new every single morning. Um, And I think... When you struggle with sin, you know, we all struggle with sin in different areas. Sure. Pastor Shane can struggle with sin in a different area than I will. And, you know, each day is a different—I feel like we struggle with sin differently. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that what I'm trying to get to is is that we are reminded that our sin isn't too too much for him to handle. Yes. And that, and I think of Paul, like on all that Paul has done, you know, and Paul is saying forgetting what is behind And reaching forward to what is ahead so i think that i take that as like he's forgetting what you know has happened behind and going in you know and continuing on like he is going on each day with that we'll lead into our break and come out on the other side with our cultural deep dive
0: And this week we're actually going to be diving in a phrase that's in this passage. Paul says, but one thing that I do, and as I was going over the notes this week and uh, kind of preparing this podcast, I was thinking back to a series of sermons I heard in college uh, by a pastor named Robert Morgan. And he did a series called The One Things of Scripture. And there are at least five one-thing statements. And so we're just going to dive deep into each one of those and kind of break down uh, what the one thing is from each deal. And it'll be kind of like a little mini-sermon for you guys. Pastor Matt, you want to
1: kick us off with the first one thing? All right, so the first thing is knowing God, the heart of prayer. This comes from Psalm 27, 4, which reads, One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek Him in His temple. Uh, when we were handing these out, I just kind of randomly picked the Psalms because I, I I picked this one because I like the Psalms. I've always enjoyed them. I had a class that largely revolved around the Psalms, and I didn't realize it. I wanted to go and read it. So this Psalm is largely about how the Lord is our stronghold. All right, David would have wrote this while he was on the run from Saul. If you remember from your Old Testament days. Saul was the king, David was the heir apparent, and Saul did not like David to say the least. So for a period of three to five years, somewhere around there, David had to run from Saul. And Saul time and time again tried to kill David, and David would get the upper hand, and he would have an opportunity to kill Saul, but he didn't, he would run away. And he did that largely to the fact that he trusted in God, that he knew that God was going to bring about his purposes in his life and both in the life of Saul and the kingdom of Israel. So in the midst of that, he's talking about this idea that one thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that in that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze in the beauty of the Lord and seek him in his temple. He means that both in a literal sense, right? They used to have a temple to the Lord, uh, a house for the Lord. But he also means that in, in a figurative sense, that to spend time in prayer, to spend time calling out and crying out to the Lord was what enabled him to endure that season of his life. And what I didn't realize was at the end of Psalm 27, is a verse that I quote to myself all the time, and I always forget where it comes from. At the end of 27, it reads, uh, starting verse 13, I am certain that I will see the Lord's goodness in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart be courageous. Wait for the Lord. And whatever prayer you and I offer, and most of our prayers aren't as beautiful as that one, right? Most of our prayers are like, Lord, help me. Lord, comfort me. Something along those lines. Even when we just say those simple words, they essentially mean the exact same thing. That prayer is about trusting in God to use you, to help you, and to see you through this, and to grant you perseverance to continue to go in on. And that's really what the heart of prayer is about, is in our knowing God, He moves in our hearts to cry out to Him. I I remember that C.S. Lewis quote where he talks about, I pray not so much that it changes God, but that it changes me.
0: Another one thing passage we find out of Mark chapter 10 with the guy we know as the rich young ruler.
2: Yeah, it's about having a heart of surrender. And let me read verse 21 of that narrative um, in the book of Mark. It says, Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. So maybe you're familiar with the story, maybe you're not. So I'll just kind of give you the cliff notes. So this rich young ruler, he comes up to Jesus, says, you know, good teacher, what do I need to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, you know, why do you call me good? No one is good but God. So in, in, in essence, Jesus is asking the rich, are you saying that I'm God? So if you're saying that I'm God, will you listen to me? Because they knew that no one was good except for God. And so he said, uh, you know, obey the commands. And the rich young ruler basically comes back and he says, hey, I've done all those things. Even since I was um, young. And so basically saying, you know, I've I've done all the do's and I've avoided all the don'ts. You know, I'm a good person. And so Jesus kind of walks down that road further with him. And he says, well, you know, one thing you still lack. And he says, go sell everything and give to the poor and then come follow me. Because if he sold everything that was important to him, all he's left with is Jesus. And so he's saying, you need to surrender to me. And he didn't want to surrender. And I know that's a hard thing for many people to kind of wrap their minds around, because we like to be in control. But in, in the grand scheme of things, we're in control of very little in our lives, to be honest. I mean, we, we have, I guess, a little bit of control, but how many people thought they were in control of their finances and then the company went bankrupt and all of their retirement is gone? They had no control over that. How many people thought they were in control of their health and then they walk into a doctor's office and every day after that changes for for them and for their family. They really weren't in control of that. And we could go on and on about all the things in our lives that we think that we're in control of. And so Jesus here, uh, very eloquently, he gets to the heart of the matter. He said, you need to surrender to me. He said, look, you need to get rid of everything in your life that you think is important to you. He said, then come and follow me. And I think the reason he says to follow him is because I'm all that you have left. And I think when we get to that point where we where Jesus is all we have left, uh, it's, it's, it's almost a cliche. It's kind of an adage. But when Jesus is all we have left, we'll find that he's all that we ever really needed. And I think that's what he's getting to uh, with this rich young uh, ruler whenever he tells him, you know, one thing you still lack. You still lack having me in your life. You're a good person. And, and a lot of people argue that. This young, rich young ruler, he argued that I'm a good person. He said, You still lack one thing. You lack me in your life.
0: Our next one thing of scripture comes
3: out of Luke chapter 10, verse 42. And like Pastor Shane just did, I'm going to give you a background as well um, here in Luke chapter 10. And we see Mary and Martha, um, and Jesus is coming into this town. And I'm going to read you uh, from verse 38. While they were traveling, he entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. She had a sister named Mary, who also sat at the Lord's feet, and was listening what he said. But Martha was distracted by her many tasks, she came up and asked, Lord, Don't you care that my sister has left me to serve alone? So tell her to give me a hand. The Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and upset about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has made the right choice, and will not be taken away from her." So we see, first off, that Martha was distracted. We see that she was distracted because Mary supposedly wasn't doing the right thing. But the so- long story short is, Martha was the one that was not paying attention because Mary was focusing on Jesus and was at Jesus's feet. And you know, and that kind of points out to serving. I think our serving attentions can be messed up sometimes. We could be doing all this stuff in the church, and, you know, think we're doing all the right things. But if our service and our ser- like our attitude doing that is not pointing to Jesus, then that's wrong. And Matthew chapter 20, verse 28, you know, it says that, you know, Jesus didn't come to be served, but to serve. And so it all has to do about our intentions in serving. I, I read this from David Guzik. He said there are three types of people who serve. There are people like Mary that know how to serve, but also know how to sit at Jesus' feet. Um, and there's also people, people like Martha, those who, you know, serve and are diligent about doing it, but they forget, like I said, um, their focus on Jesus. And then there's other people who don't serve at all and don't know what that is. But serving is such a crucial part of a Christian's walk. And our final one thing scripture is about the heart of witness.
0: And it's out of John chapter 9. There's a blind man uh, many of you will be familiar with this. He, They didn't know whether he was blind because of his sins or his parents' sins. And Jesus said, neither of those are why you're blind. And uh, maybe the most memorable part of this is Jesus spits on the ground and he makes mud. And as he makes that mud, um, he rubs it on the blind man's eyes and then his, his sight is healed. And so he goes back into town and he's sharing the testimony of what Jesus did in his life. And, of course, the Pharisees, they're they are getting fed up with Jesus. They're ready to kill him. Everything he does, they're against. They even accuse him. You know, he defies the Sabbath. He defies the laws of God. And this young man responds. He's replied, whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. But one thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. And this really speaks to the power of remembering what God has done in your life. And we talked about it just a minute ago. You know, forgetting our own achievements, forgetting our own sins, but remembering what it is that God has done. And there's many times in our life that we're not going to understand. There's a lot of situations that become confusing or uh, maybe a disaster or a tragedy where we go, you know, I don't understand why God's doing this. I don't understand how God would allow this. I don't understand this. I don't understand that. But it's here in those moments that we could stop and go, but one thing I do know, God has been faithful to me. God has made change in my life. God has done, like in this man's example, I was blind, but now I see. And remembering the mercy of the Lord. And, Even that verse Connor brought up earlier out of Lamentations where Jeremiah is struggling and he is hurting and he feels rejected and he feels broken. Uh, I, I say this all the time, but Lamentations 3 is possibly the most depressing chapter in all the Bible. He said he feels like God is attacking him like a lion in hiding. Like he's piercing him in his side with his quiver of arrows. Like that is a depressing chapter of scripture. He says, but this I call to mind, the mercies of the Lord are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. It's in, it's the same heart of saying I don't understand what's going on right now but this I do know. God is faithful and he always has been and he always will be. And so each one of these one thing scriptures all point us back to this same idea of knowing God and knowing Christ and knowing the power of his resurrection. And so we thought it would be worth taking a little bit of time to dive in to each of those. We'll be back in just a minute to continue our walk through Philippians chapter 3. up Philippians chapter 3 in the first verse of chapter 4 and Paul continues on with his thought here and says in verse 15, therefore let all of us who are mature think this way. And he's talking about this idea that he just said I'm not perfect, I keep pressing forward, I forget what lies behind and he makes a connection here between maturity and humility. How are those things connected?
2: Well I guess in a sense they're two sides of the same coin. You, I've noticed like in, in my own life, and you, I mean, you could, if you examine people or, you know, look at people long enough, you can see that a lot of times those two go kind of in tandem. People who are mature appear to exhibit more humility in their life. It's kind of like when you're young and, you know, you're strong, you want everybody to know you're strong. And so, you know, you, or at least this was my experience growing up is you want everybody to know you're strong. So you may fight or you may brag or you may, you know, do those sort of things because you feel like people have to know when you're older, you don't necessarily, and I know this is kind of a practical kind of view of it, but the older you get, the more you mature. And I know those two don't always go hand in hand, like growing older and maturing because everybody does not do that. But I feel like I have matured a lot. The, the older I get being the senior on this panel today. Uh, and I feel like I'm, you know, I don't I don't need to do those things like I did when I was, say, 19 or 20. And if, if you, like, man, I don't see you as humble now. I, I was really bad back then. You could just imagine.
0: I liken it to my relationship with my dad. When I was about 18 years old till about 24 years old, I thought my dad was the dumbest person on the planet Earth. Everything that he knew about life was outdated and was not true, and every decision he thought I should make was the wrong decision. And it's crazy, but when I turned 25 years old, year by year, my dad started getting a little smarter, Mm -hmm. and I started realizing, oh, you know what? And so as I was maturing, I became less prideful about my way and my thoughts and began to grow some humility, and realize, you know what, my dad was actually pretty smart the whole time, and if I would have been humble enough at 18, 19 years old and and on, that I would have made a lot better decisions um, because my pride would not have been in the way.
1: I think you could also make the argument they they develop in tandem. So you grow in one, you kind of grow in the other. I guess you could argue one becomes for the other, but I I don't think that's probably how it works most of the time. But I do think, uh, like Shane was saying earlier, they sort of are different sides of the same coin. They're inherently linked together. I don't think you can be more mature and less humble. I don't think you'd be less humble and more mature. Perhaps one of the reasons that Paul is mentioning this is
0: something that I've noticed, and I'm curious if you guys have noticed. Sometimes the people that you think are the most spiritually mature actually end up being some of the most legalistic people and I think Paul's saying, no, real maturity is not about legalism or about thinking that you're perfect. or in Real maturity is knowing that you are sinful and broken and that you're striving towards knowing Christ more and the power of his resurrection.
1: And I always thought the phrase there at the end of that verse is really interesting. So he says, therefore, let all of us who are mature think this way. But then he immediately follows up with, and if you think differently about anything, God will reveal this also to you. Which I think is both an example of humility and maturity, right? Yes. Why are you laughing? No, it's
0: just a funny statement. Oh, okay. By Paul, it's like if you disagree with me, God'll god set you straight on it. <laughs> that's know? That's one way to read that. <laughs> it's like I'm not going to argue with you. God'll set you straight. That's right. Yeah. So it, I was laughing because it, it is a statement of humility and maturity, but it comes across sure. as a prideful yeah. statement. <laughs> Um, And, of course, we know Paul was right because this book is in the canon and it is the Word of God. Mm -hmm. But it is um, certainly an interesting phrasing. He goes on, In any case, we should live up to whatever truth we have obtained. Join me, or join in imitating me, brothers and sisters, and pay careful attention to those who live according to the example you have in us. So Paul here mentions something. He mentions a couple other places in Scripture. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. We kind of get this example to imitate mature believers. How do we balance imitating others as examples, but not holding them into such a great light that it could lead us astray?
3: I think when we have to realize is that they're still broken people, that they're still sinners. You know, they're not perfect.
2: Yeah, and if you're around them long enough, you'll see that. I mean, and you, but, you know, see that the sort brokenness going to come yeah. out. You know. Yeah and maybe I'm just speaking for myself, but I'm, I believe I'm speaking for most people when I say that, you know, as we are imitating people, there are certain traits in other people that are inspiration, that are admirable, but we also see traits in them that aren't as as much. And the ones that are admirable and, and they inspire us, I think we intrinsically, to some degree, want to be more like that. Whether we pursue it or not is a, totally different conversation. But I think to that that we would like to pursue those things that are admirable and, and, you know, inspirational uh, in other people in our spiritual walk. But I think kind of like Connor said, I think we see the good and bad in people. Mm -hmm. And whenever, you know, somebody, when, when it is a trait that's less admirable, I don't think we try to pursue those. We try to pursue things that inspire us but i think that's if you're around them long enough but and here's i think the harmful part it's the ones you're not always around when people only see you like on sunday like say as a pastor they only see you on sunday they they may not see the good and the bad and all those sort of things i think that's why you have in some cases i don't know what other term to use other than rock star preachers you know these these ones that are just Viral? Have, a, have a yeah, viral. They you know they have a large social media presence and and you know a lot of their bumper sticker sayings you know you find in memes and all those sort of things. Hmm. I think that's where probably the greater danger lies because they're not putting their flaws out on social media. They're not putting their flaws in a quip or a meme. You know they're not going to do that. And so I think there's a greater danger to have it out of balance. In that situation, that's why I think it's all uh, And you know, I'm not saying everybody's, you know, out there is sure. is a bad teacher or leading anybody. astray. I'm not saying anything like that, but I, I would say that is why it is infinitely important to be part of a local church. Yes, and so that you have a local pastor that that cares for your spiritual growth and you can see the good and the flaws in that person because you're up close to them. You, you live life with them and, and that sort of thing.
1: Yeah, I think there's you should be cautious when you see pastors with swagger. Swagger is not a good thing for a pastor to have, uh, and a lot of those YouTube and social media pastors they got swagger, and it it's a different thing when you walk with somebody day after day after day. And honestly, it's better. It's yeah. so much better to be with people who are honest in themselves than somebody who's clearly just put it on a show.
3: You know, and sometimes when I when you're on social media and you kind of look at those kind of people or like at passion, like I think like. Oh man, these are really great, you know, preachers. And you somewhat forget that they're broken people too. Sure. And like what Pastor Matt says, you know, you're not walking daily with these people. Mm-hmm. Sean Lovejoy at a conference I went to on church planning called it spiritual porn.
0: He said hmm. you get this unrealistic expectation of what church is or what church growth is sure. or what an experience is. And it it actually does the same thing that pornography does to a marriage. It makes your intimacy less because what you see is not reality. It's an enhanced view. And Mm -hmm. so when you get into the reality of it, it makes it feel less special. It makes it feel less authentic or genuine. And so there is a danger there. I think there's also a calling here to leaders and spiritual leaders to live a life that's worth imitating. Mm -hmm. And the thing that is true about pastors and leaders in the church, people will imitate us for the good or the bad. One of my mentors told me one time, and I think it's it's been true in ministry. He said, whatever you do in moderation, your congregants will do in excess because they'll look and say, well, if the pastor does that, they're always going to hold you to a higher standard of what they hold themselves. so if if he does that, then it's okay for me to, to do sure. more than that. Sure. And so you know for us that, yeah. yeah, and and so for us as leaders, and whether you're a, a high capacity volunteer or a small group leader or a pastor, there's a calling there to make sure that we do hold ourselves to a standard Mm -hmm. of living that is worth imitating and following and also being authentic and genuine about our own mistakes and our own failures. And so if I do something, say Connor's with me, Connor and I spend a lot of time together. If I do something that I immediately realize was a bad example, if I tell Connor, Hey Connor, I shouldn't have acted that way. I shouldn't have said these things. That was, you know, whatever the situation may be, then I've corrected that because then he's going, yeah, that's not an attitude I should be imitating.
1: Mm-hmm. Sure.
0: You know, what I should imitate is the repent of heart. And, you know, even my football coach in high school, he's a very good Christian man, but he had very bad language at times. And I remember many times in, in high school, in the middle of our football practice, him stopping the practice and calling the whole team together and praying in front of us, asking God to forgive him for things that he had said. That left a huge, a much larger example on me than the words that came out of his mouth. The fact that he was broken and sinful and repentant in front of the whole team Mm -hmm. when those things happened.
2: You know, there's there's always been a conversation and maybe our listeners don't know this quite as well as we have experienced it. There's always been sort of a conversation amongst pastors of how vulnerable to present yourself Mm -hmm. when speaking to your congregation. I I know a, a generation older than myself, I've, I've heard them talk and they 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 feels that there should be less vulnerability and you know more distance between you and the congregation to protect yourself and and those sort of things and then when you get kind of down to ours uh mine and you know yours and then maybe even a younger generation maybe Connor's um, generation you know to be more vulnerable when you're speaking to your congregation to your you know, your Bible study group, whatever the case, the situation may call for. And I, I know there's, there's, there probably should be balance because I think sometimes I've seen the danger of too much revealing or what what have you, you know, mm-hmm. of that sort of thing. But I don't, I was just curious what you guys thought on, on that was, because I think it's kind of a fine line for, for pastors to walk on, um, you know, v- vulnerability when you're, when you're speaking.
0: I think you can be, you can share too much detail -hmm.
3: As well, to where it actually becomes harmful. Connor, if you don't mind me using an example, I was about to talk about. Okay, go ahead. I'm sorry. Um, (laughs) You know, at woke, I was sharing some of my, you know, testimony, and I was talking about my past, and you know, kind of getting really vulnerable with them and stuff like that. And Josh, you know, we talked the next day, and he was telling me like, you basically just told the kids that they can go out and do those things, and I was like, really? How? How is that?
0: Yeah, and I don't think I said it exactly like that, but... <laughs> I mean, kind of, but... My <laughs> point was... <laughs> that's, how, that's what that's he heard. That's <laughs> <right>. <laughs> well, my point was, you went into a lot of details of things that you had done that the kids are going to go, okay, well, if Connor did all those things and he turned out the way he did, well, what's stopping me from no. doing them? Mm-hmm. And, and I think the the actual advice that I gave you, Direction, I said, look, it's okay to share specifics if you're preaching on that specific. And I you said all these specific things you did partying. And I was like, you could have said, I went partying. And, yeah, I have and done that. that would have been vulnerable because you were repentant about that. You were broken about that. Mm-hmm. But you didn't have to list every sin that you committed at that party. I know, I shouldn't have done that.
3: <laughs>
1: yeah, as a general rule, I think, when it comes to how vulnerable to be, you always want to be pointing people to Jesus. Mm-hmm. If you're up teaching, that's the whole main point of everything you're doing anyway. Yes. So you want to ask yourself... By being specific in this situation, am I helping people to point Jesus to see the redemption and repentance that we have yes. in Him, or am I just giving them something to be kind of be voyeuristic about, yes. and so to imagine, you know, oh, what this person used to do, or well, on those sorts of things? So you want to be it, there's some balance there. It's yeah. not always easy to find it, but it's definitely there.
0: Yeah, and I think it's one of those things being led by the Spirit and being mm-hmm. sensitive to to what God's leading you to do when you're preaching, and and I think that. The most important thing about being vulnerable in these areas of sharing sin and things is to have a heart of repentance and humility. I mean, I've heard people talk about sin, like even pastors talk about sins they had committed, but it was almost like they were bragging about them. Yeah. you know, yeah. like and they
2: missed it or something.
0: Like they missed mm-hmm. it, or you know, I know it was sinful, but really, I was right. You yeah. know, and usually it's a it's a mancho. Uh, masculine pastor that's talking about beating somebody up one sure, time or something yeah. of that nature. But it, I think the key is to make sure that when we reveal our sins to the people as leaders, that they know that we were broken and repentive, and that if we had to do it again, we wouldn't have done it. He goes on to say, For I have often told you, now saying again with tears, that many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their stomach. Their glory is in their shame. They are focused on earthly things, so what does it mean to be an enemy of the cross?
2: I think it's to treat things of God as if they don't matter uh, I, you know and I, that's that's kind of a painting with a broad brush, you sure. know but I think it's uh you know in essence that's what it is you it, it has no bearing on your decisions it, it has no effect on your life. you couldn't care less
1: yeah, I mean there in nineteen through twenty he He lists some of the qualities of enemies of the cross, right? Uh, They're in his destruction. Their God is their stomach. Stomach in the ancient sense would be the seat of pleasure or whatever. So these people, they're primarily seeking their own pleasure above all else. Uh, He goes on and says their glory is their shame. So the things they're actually glorying in, the things they're proud of, should be seen as shameful. But because they're so caught up in this, because they're enemies of the cross, they don't see it. They think it's something to glorify in and to be proud of. Oh, and then he says, and they are focused on earthly things. He's not saying that we should always ignore earthly things, but that's where their focus is. That's where they're spending most of their time. They're thinking about here, now. They're not thinking about the long view of history that Christians always have to. Uh, Russell Moore, uh, I've heard him preach several times. Christians, sometimes when we're making big life decisions, we got to think about what does this look like in 10,000 years? And he's not saying that you and I are going to live 10,000 years, but he's saying being a follower of Christ is our decisions have long-term effects. They have long-term realities that are going to echo from them, and we have to keep that in mind, that we are made for another world, and we are heading that way, one way or the other. One of the things Paul addresses in at least three of his letters
0: is for believers to lift their eyes above earthly things and seek the things that are above. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that's all totally tied in and connected. Mm-hmm there as well, that if we want to be an enemy of the cross, if we want to not be an enemy of the cross, we do that by lifting our eyes beyond earth
1: and pleasures. And and also, it's, it's worth pointing out, what's the opposite of the cross? Well, the cross was about Jesus denying himself. The cross was about him being a servant and serving others and saying, not thinking of himself. So, if you want to be an enemy of the cross, do those things. Do the opposite of what the cross represents. Or... If you don't want to be an enemy of the cross, then just fall after the way of Jesus. Exactly.
0: And he shifts that here to the opposite and says, But our citizenship Hmm. is in heaven, and we eagerly wait for a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. He will transform our body in the humble condition into the likeness of his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject everything to To himself and so he shifts here and says instead of being focused on the earthly things and instead of being enemy of the cross our citizenship is in heaven and we are eagerly awaiting our eyes are Mm -hmm. fixed upon Jesus and I love Charles Spurgeon said this in reference to this verse he said he we live because he lives and never is our life more joyous than when we look most steadily to him and that ultimate sense that we get fulfillment and satisfaction and peace from fixing our eyes firmly on Jesus instead of the things of this earth. Mm-hmm. And it reminds me of that great hymn, And may the things of earth grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Thank you. I couldn't remember the name of it, but I can remember the words.
2: Oh, well, I thought you did. I mean, because you, you were nailing it down. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I remember the words. I thought you were going to break out in song. but
0: Man, you know, I, I don't know about you guys, but I've... Last couple of weeks, I've just had a lot of hymns go through my mind and some of these great lines that kind of resonate. But I think it's so true that as we turn our eyes towards Jesus, the things of this world world grow strangely dim. So. Paul wraps it up here in chapter 4, verse 1. And I'll just make a small note here. We all know this, but our listeners may not, that chapters and verses did not exist. Paul didn't write a letter to the Philippians with chapters and verses. Somebody came in at some mm-hmm. point and divided this up to make it easier to reference. But chapter four verse one actually goes with the thoughts before, um, leading into the thought, the next thoughts. But he says, "So then, my dearly beloved, or dearly loved and longed for brothers and sisters, my joy and crown in this manner stand firm in the Lord, dear friends." And Paul is letting them know why he's sharing these things with them, that they may stand firm. And so, how does this, what Paul shared with us in these verses leading up, encourage and enable us to better stand firm? in times of persecution, trials, struggles, because that's what the church at Philippi was struggling with. How do these things encourage us and help us to stand firm in those difficult days? Well, I know me,
1: as I was reading through this, verse 21 was uh, very hopeful for me. He says, And he will transform the body of our humble condition into the likeness of his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject everything to himself, We know Jesus right now, and right now is not even the best way of saying it, but it's the only way of saying it. Right now, Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the Father, and all things are being reconciled to Him and in Him. And that's a great comfort to me, because sometimes I struggle and I get aggravated with my body, right? Right now, my back is hurting. and <laughs> It's quite uncomfortable sitting in this chair. But there's a day coming, because my citizenship is in heaven, because I'm united in Christ through faith, there's a day where those things aren't going to be an issue anymore. And this unruly body that I have now that's got flat and flab and things I don't care for and and times where I struggle and feel weird in it, this body will one day be glorified just as Jesus' body is. And that hope, that reminder, hopefully is going to anchor me to all the more, finish the race that's before me, all the more to help me forget what is behind and to reach forward to what is ahead.
2: Yeah, I think for the believer, what's ahead is always worth more than what's behind Mm -hmm. and i think that's true um, like matt said you know on on this side of heaven that you know everything that is ahead of us uh, even, even if we've been walking with christ for 20 years if he if it's true and we believe it is that he is still reconciling all of creation including man to himself if he's still redeeming this world then full process or the the full glory of redemption is not yet complete. Mm -hmm. So we always have that to look forward to. And so I think it's always whatever's ahead of us is always going to be more costly, more of a prize than what, you know, is behind us. And I think that's a good motivation because you, you always have hope no matter how bad or how good, you know, I've, I've heard it said before that you know, if, if Jesus is your Savior, then whatever your worst day was, that's the worst day that you could ever have if Jesus is your Savior. And um, if Jesus isn't your Savior, then your best day is the best day you'll ever
3: have because it only gets worse from there. Mm-hmm. What Shane and you know, Matt said, our, citizen, our citizenship isn't here, it's in heaven. Mm-hmm. In this life, there will be many hard things and terrible things that may come, but it's just such a reassurance that there is a God that loves, loves us and that died for us on the cross so that we may live with him again. And so I, I think that's just such an encouragement mm-hmm. and that helps me wake up each day knowing that Jesus is with me everywhere I go. It takes me back to that gospel story of Peter walking on water
0: and as he steps out on the boat we know remember he's walking on the water he's looking at jesus but then he takes his eyes off jesus and begins to look at the storm and begin to to focus on the things around him and he begins to sink and i think here paul's talking to a church through persecution and his encouragement to them is to fix your eyes on that goal of knowing christ and the power of his resurrection and the way we do that is by lifting our eyes towards him and so in this life if we want to want to move past the difficulties and through the difficult situations, the solution to that is to fix our eyes on Jesus Mm -hmm. and to strive towards that goal of knowing Him, to forget what lies behind, even in a sense to forget what's going on around us, but only to focus on Him and the power of His resurrection. Man, what another great week in the Word of God here in Philippians chapter 3 with the Word Smith. I want to thank you guys for listening no matter whether you listen on apple google spotify overcast whatever platform you listen to subscribe leave us a review let others know how much you enjoy this podcast we can't wait to dive back in with you next week and more than anything else it's our prayer that our discussion and our time here helps you grow in your walk with jesus christ every day we'll see you guys next week
2: Burr.